Hey guys, Michael Cohen here, and welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you all very much for joining me on the debut of this venture a week ago. The listenership and the comments and the engagement exceeded my expectations, so I'm glad you guys haven't gotten tired of me, and hopefully I can continue to find some really interesting interviews that you guys will enjoy. A week ago, we had former NFL coach Jerry Glanville, who was the head coach of both the Houston Oilers and the Atlanta Falcons during a career that has spanned five, six decades and still continues today as defensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Vipers in the XFL. That was a lot of fun, and I think the conversation we're going to have for you today is a lot of fun. My guest on this episode of the podcast is another former NFL coach, Dave McGinnis. Now, Dave's career began way back in 1986 as the linebacker's coach for the defending champion Chicago Bears. That means his very first pupil was none other than Mike Singletary. His career spanned all the way until 2016 when he finished up a stint as assistant head coach for Jeff Fisher and the Los Angeles Rams. In between, he spent 10 years with the Bears, as I mentioned, followed that up as defensive coordinator of the Arizona Cardinals for four years, from 1996 to 2000. Then he took over as head coach in Arizona from 2000 to 2003. He moved and linked up with Jeff Fisher for the first time in 2004 on the NFL level. He became the linebackers coach for the Tennessee Titans from 2004 to 2011, and during that time he became assistant head coach as well. They continued that relationship on, as I mentioned, when Jeff Fisher went to the St. Louis Rams, he brought Dave McGinnis with him, and then both of those guys went on to L.A. when the Rams relocated to California for the 2016 season. So to put it simply, he's coached everybody from Mike Singletary to Aaron Donald, and that gives him some incredible perspective on the league, scouting, coaching, the way things have changed, and everything else in between, and I hope you guys will really enjoy it. In case you weren't sure, episodes of this podcast are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about any other platform you want where you can find your podcasts. If you happen to be listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, maybe you're listening uh, on a tablet or a MacBook or even just your cell phone, if you're listening on any of those Apple programs, we encourage you to leave a star rating, leave a comment, leave a review, and let us know what you think because the more reviews and positive feedback we get, the more exposure the show gets, which means more listeners, and that just makes it much more fun and interesting and collaborative with you guys giving your feedback and ideas and me trying to tailor some guests around those ideas. The last little bit of housekeeping news before we get on to today's show is actually an exciting one. We have a sponsor for today's program. It's drinkvirtually.com. That's drink virtually.com. If you guys are like me, then this period of time where everyone is staying at home, everyone is following social distancing practices, it's a little bit tough. You wish you were hanging out with your friends, you wish you were at the bar, you wish you were playing all those drinking games that so many of us do at barbecues and kickbacks and pregames and all those kinds of things. And that's where drinkvirtually.com comes in. It's a totally free, no commitment required website where you can go for all your virtual drinking game needs. That's right. If you like games like Kings, Ride the Bus, Higher or Lower, Screw the Dealer, Wombat. I know you're probably thinking Wombat. I've never played that game before. I played on Friday night with a bunch of my buddies from high school. It was the most fun I've had playing a drinking game in I don't know how long. It's a crazy competition between you and your friends where you have to sing duets or rap battle or go back and forth naming your favorite actors until somebody messes up. It's so much fun. Some of us were laughing so hard we came to tears. I promise you it's the most popular game on the site right now and you will love it. And the best part 
part is it's totally free. Like I mentioned, you don't need an account. You don't need a credit card. All you do is go to drinkvirtually.com. You click a game and you start playing. That's it. There's no need to sign in, no commitment, no profile, no annoying spam emails, none of that stuff. Just a place for you to go and play some games at a time when we're all looking for a little bit of amusement. So be sure to join the thousands of people worldwide and in all 50 states that are playing games at drinkvirtually.com. Please drink responsibly. So with that out of the way, we can get into today's show with former NFL head coach Dave McGinnis. He is talking to us from Nashville, where he currently lives and works as a radio broadcaster for the Tennessee Titans. He's the analyst on their game broadcast, does a lot of draft shows, podcasts, and also some regular radio work on FM stations in the Nashville area. So without further ado, here is a conversation with Dave McGinnis. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. I know this is a time where uh, everybody is trying to, to figure out what to do with, with their time in a situation where people are stuck at home. And uh, as somebody who has always been a great storyteller in the football world, I really wanted to pr- pick your brain a little bit. So how are you, my friend? I'm doing good, Michael. I mean, I've got, I've got plenty to do because we've got a big draft show here on Titans Radio that we're going to do. So I've been spending a lot of time since the Combine you know, going over a lot of draft prospects and and trying to get that lined up. And then plus we're doing official Titans podcast. And then I've got three radio shows here in Nashville. So, so I've been busy, but I've been doing it all remotely. I mean, you know, Nashville, like most other cities across America is, is, you know, they're in lockdown right now. And so they're in, uh, you know, self-isolation. I'm in self-isolation just as I'm sure you and all of our listeners are too. So, you know, get a lot of work done. We're just doing it differently. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an interesting time. And so that was part of the reason I wanted to put together this podcast, you know, the type of thing where, you know, everybody can use something to brighten their day a little bit, something to smile about. And so two guys talking about sports and telling some fun stories is a great way to do that. And so the way I want to start this out is I got to take you back to 1986 here, where you had just coached at a number of different colleges, Missouri, Indiana State, TCU, Kansas State. And all of a sudden in 86, you break into the league, but you don't just break into the league. You break into the league with a team that's coming off a Super Bowl victory in the 85 Bears, a team that everybody knows is a legendary team in NFL history, and you get hired by Mike Ditka. How did this all come together? How did you break into the league back then? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, I was very fortunate. You know, I was I was a young coach, and that, that was back before. I mean, I was only the ninth coach on the staff. They had only had eight guys on the staff, you know, the year the, all of those years, and, and some, some staffs only had seven people. So right. there weren't very big coaching staffs. So the opportunity to break into the league, I mean, it just wasn't there because, first of all, you know, coaches didn't move around much in the National Football League during those times. Head coaches, if you got a job, you know, you, you normally got five years to get something going. And if you got something going within those five years, of course, it was different then, Michael. There was no free agency. Yep. There was no salary cap. So you had a chance to kind of build and, and extend what you had built on layer after layer, year after year. I mean, so it was an entirely different world, an entirely different time. But, uh, you know, when, when Buddy Ryan left, you know, after the, the Super Bowl year and got the head job at Philadelphia, he went, you know, he went and took the head job. Well, then Vince Tobin had been with Jim Mora, you know, at the Philadelphia Baltimore Stars, and they had won that USFL title of course. You know, for a couple of years. And then when Jim Moore went to New Orleans, he hired Vince Tobin to be his defensive coordinator. Well, once Buddy left, you know, Mike Dicta, you know, uh, talked to Bill Tobin, who was the general manager there at the time, and said, look, I'd really like to talk to your brother Vince. Do you think 
he's has he already signed his contract in New Orleans, or do you think he would at least talk to us about coming up here? So anyway, Vince went up there and, and talked to him, and uh, you know they figured out you know anyway he and I don't know what he and Mike worked out, but anyway he got the job. He took the job as a coordinator there at the Bears, and Vince and I had worked together, right? You know, in 1975 at the University of Missouri. And then I had done some work, you know, and I had, I had, I had been to cowboy camps and I had done some work, uh, you know, for Gil Brandt when I was in college, as far as scouting people in my conference, like Gil had a lot of particular, you know, younger coaches do around the country for him. I mean, he was way ahead of his time doing that. And, you know, I just, I knew a lot of people I'd been to a lot of camps, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of uh, clinics. I'd done a lot of things, but then, you know, he asked, you know, if I'd like to come and interview with the bears and I said, well, absolutely I would. I was in Dallas at the time recruiting. And so I flew up to Chicago immediately. And, and Mike Dickey interviewed five people for the job. Uh, it was going to be the linebacker job, and there was going to be a, a lot more with the linebacker job. But anyway, he interviewed five guys for that position. Uh, four of them had NFL experience. I was the only one that didn't. And so, you know, he – Well, then you, you must have done two- something right then. Well, I mean, I don't know. But anyway, he, he called me in there after the – second day and said you know you know kid you know do you want this job and i said yes sir i want this job he said all right he said you go 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 let's go get it he said just remember you're the coach they're the player and uh, we'll get this thing done together and so and he said i'll always have your back and he always has so that i mean that's that's how it started off that's really interesting to me because you know when he talked about saying you know you're the coach they're the players well at the linebacker position for the Bears back then you didn't have just anyone you had a guy Mike Singletary who's regarded by some as the greatest inside linebacker ever and so you and I have talked in the past because you got to know Matt LaFleur when he was in Tennessee and then Matt LaFleur went to Green Bay when I covered the Packers and so you and I talk just in general about what it's like to work with you know a guy like Aaron Rodgers a guy that's going to be a Hall of Famer well you had to go through that yourself as well and a guy in Singletary who was the best at his position one of the best of all time were you were you nervous at all how do you build a relationship with a guy like that well I mean what Mike was talking about is the fact because I was young you know I was I was very very young and he just wanted me to know that everything that I had done you know get to get to this point my relationship with players and what I had done I mean he what he's basically saying is don't do anything different than you've ever done and so one of the first things I did you know I, I called Mike Singletary and, uh, you know, and, and he and I and he and I visited. And one of the things I asked him, you know, immediately, I said, Mike, what do I need to do or what how in the best way could I earn you guys respect? And he said, Coach Mike, let me tell you something. Let me tell you three things. He said, number one, always be honest with us. Number two, if you don't know, just say you don't know and we'll all figure it out together. And he said, number three, let us know genuinely that you care for us as much as people as you do. He said, don't just say it. Let us feel it that you care for us as much as people as you do that number on our back. Right. And I said, I can do that. Because when I first went into the league and when I got the job, I had a lot of, you know, contemporaries call me, guys that were in the league, you know, and then some guys that were, they're still trying to get in the league said, look, you're going to have to be different than you were in college because, you know, I was very close to my players in college. I was a, I was a good football coach, but I was a really good recruiter too. And I'd gotten close to a lot of players that I'd recruited you know, to, to all those universities, you know, that I had worked at in major college football. And they said, you know, now, you know, the National Football League is a business. And so I was, you know, you know, thinking to myself, you know, I've, I've done pretty well for myself and being myself and, and being the way I am and being, uh, being honest with people and building relationships with people and, 
if I can't build relationships in this league, then that's going to be really hard. Well, when I got up there and I heard that from Michael, then I said, you know what, I'm going to be myself. And it worked pretty well for me for 35 years. What was it like to see somebody of that caliber in practice every day? I can only imagine watching, you know, because back then, as you know, contact in practice and in training camp, there was a lot more of it than there is now. So to see, you know, Singletary and Walter Payton match wits in practice and to see what he could do and the way he ran, what was it like? Well, you know, my, my, my first, you know, we only had a three-day mini camp. We didn't have all the OTAs sure. that we have now. You know, you didn't have all of that. And so, I mean, I was there for the Super Bowl ring ceremony. You know, they presented that. At a, at a hotel there on the North Shore called the Hotel Moraine. I was at that ceremony, so I met, you know, a lot of the players there, you know, that night. And then we had a three-day mini camp. And so, look, I had Mike Singletary, Otis Wilson, Wilbur Marshall, Ron Rivera, Al Harris, Jim Morrissey. I mean, these guys, I mean, this this linebacker crew could have started anywhere in the league, any one of them. Right. Okay? And and not only, you know, was I with, with that group, they were just coming off one of the greatest years ever in the history of defense in the National Football League. And so when I, when I, you know, when I met them and, we, and then we started the meetings as a team and then we'd break down individ, into individuals, I found out why they were so good because, look, they were all about having a good time and they were all about their own personalities. And Mike Ditka was the biggest personality of all. But when it came to football, they worked. And they were serious about their football. And they were extremely serious, you know, about after Buddy Ryan left, about – you know, incorporating some new defense and going out to prove that they were still, no matter what defense they played, they were still the Super Bowl shuffle bears. And so, I mean, it was, and then you get to practice and it, from individual all the way through, I mean, it was incredible the intensity that they worked with. I mean, it, it was, it was a lot of fun to be around. And then, as you said, when you go to training camp, I mean, there was none of this, you know, you can only have pads on this many times. Right. We went full pads twice a day, every day in Platteville, Wisconsin. And as I said, you know, those guys, both offensively and defensively, they were no joke because they're, I mean, they're a hall of famers. You know, you have, you have Mike Singletary, you got Richard Dent, you got Dan Hampton, you got Jimbo Covert, you got Walter Payton. I mean, they're, they're hall of fame players on that field practicing and everybody else is trying to, is coming up to that caliber. You've got tremendous athletes. You've got Willie Galt over there on offense who, you know, who was one of the fastest humans, I'd ever seen at that time in in a in a football uniform. You've got William Perry, who's just a freak of nature. Yep. You know, who's a large human being that can do anything. You got Steve McMichael, who's one of the smartest, and most vicious defensive tackles I've ever been around in my life. Mike Hartenstein. I mean, I can go. You know, you go back to the secondary with with Gary Fensick, Dave Durson, Sean Gale. I mean, uh, Dennis Gentry, one of the finest all around backs ever in the history of the league. I mean, they were just there was talent all over that field because Bill Tobin and and his and his uh, scouting department, which was three people, three people were in the scouting department, and 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 Bill Tobin and, and Jim Palmer and then Jim Finks, they they put all of that 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 group together. I mean, it was amazing the amount of talent that we had, and then Mike Ditka was the perfect perfect head coach for that group because as big as those personalities were. There were no bigger personality than Mike Ditka. It was, look, it was, people ask me now, and I do a lot of, uh, of speeches around the country and a lot of talks, and people ask me, how can you describe it? And I say, it was like Camelot in football. It really was Camelot.
So, you know, the Bears have resurged and had a little bit of a, um, you know, a comeback recently, but there was a long time in the early 2000s where they struggled as a franchise and their sort of place among the NFL elite in terms of teams and, and franchises you think about as the best in the league had receded a little bit. But back then, coming off the 85 title, going to the playoffs a number of years consecutively as you guys did th- throughout your tenure there, what was the mood like in Chicago at the time? It was, it was beautiful. I mean, there was, there was no way there's, look, it, it, it was, it was, it was, as I said, it was a dreamland for a young football coach and it was a dreamland. Look, I, I still love the city of Chicago. I love those fans. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this sometime in this. Uh, we don't have uh, a lot of time. I mean, I've been asked to do a book by several different people and sure. I'm going to do one when I'm completely done with it. But you know, I was head coach of the bears for six hours and didn't know it for three. I mean, <laughs> they for, for, for 10 years, I was there. They liked me enough to bring me back and name me the head coach. They just didn't ask me first. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Sure. But I love I love Virginia McCaskey and her late husband Ed McCaskey. They were so good to me. The city of Chicago and the Chicago Bears. I mean, they made that that made my career. It really did. But during those times, and you got to remember, during those times also, that's when Michael Jordan and the Bulls started to generate too. Yep. I mean, and so the the city of Chicago was just. I mean, you had Saturday Night Live rolling with all the the Bears people, and I mean, it was just look, it was like being it was like being in Hollywood, except you were you were there in Chicago, and there was no greater feeling. I mean, I can remember as a you know the young coach going down to Moose Scowlin's bar, you know, down there on the south side of Chicago with Moose and all those people, and then I mean, it's just such a unique city. I love the city, I love the fans, but the feeling uh, on game day. At, the, at Soldier Field, the original Soldier Field, during those years, there was nothing like it. The the roster that, that you guys had at the time, you know, it ended up being a couple of guys that went into coaching, and two of them still active today. You already mentioned Ron Rivera, who was an inside backer for you, and then, of course, Harbaugh at quarterback, Jim Harbaugh there. Uh, did you recognize anything in those two guys back then that, that made you think they could, you know, go into coaching if they wanted? Or if you didn't specifically recognize that, was there something about their intelligence or their work ethic that made you think that they were, you know, special guys? Well, no, no, absolutely. And it was two different, you know, there was two different types of, of, of interaction with those guys because, and of course, we, also Leslie Frazier and Mike Singletary, you know, went into the coaching. Of business course. Too. Yep. So, yep. so those guys, but you ask about, you ask about Ron and you ask about Jim Harbaugh. Ron Rivera is one of my favorite players and people of all time. You know, now that, you know, when he got the, he just now got the Washington Redskin job. I saw Ron at the combine. Uh, he was gracious enough to do a big thing for, for, for me and for the radio station I'm on here, 104.5 in, in Nashville. Uh, but Ron and I are very close, and we always will be. But at the time, you asked me, yes, you could tell, because Ron Rivera was that guy. He was the coach's dream because he knew every position, all right, and he could go in at any time, and he could go in at any time without a whole lot of practice time. But he was so smart, and at, at the time, you know, he was he, – you could tell that, that, that he was working towards the future also – because he would ask really deep, detailed questions, and he was not only asking about that particular time, he was asking, how, why are we doing this, and how are we using this to build on what we are going to do? So absolutely, I could tell. I mean, back during that time when I was named head coach, you know, for six hours, didn't know for three, Ron Rivera, I had my staff put together, and Ron Rivera was going to be my linebacker coach. Really? You know, and that was, I was, I was going to give him his first job, yes, because, and I, as I say, I, his, his success, as a head coach in the National Football League, doesn't surprise me one bit. 
And so, I mean, he was, and plus he was a, he was a football smart guy. And plus he was tough. He was mentally and physically tough. And the other thing was when you, you've got, when you've got a room full of, of stars, like we had, you need some guys that are glues for those stars, the glue for those stars. He was one of those glue guys. He really was. Yeah, that's really interesting. Jim Harbaugh. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I was there when we drafted Jim. And, of course, Jim, because, you know, the biggest issue that those Bears teams had after that 85 years that that really kept us from winning another Super Bowl, we couldn't keep Jim McMahon healthy. You know, Jim McMahon was never healthy after that Super Bowl year. Right. You know, he never was. And so that that was a huge, huge thing. Because when we lost in in the playoffs, we lost to the eventual world champions. So we were still a really top-tier, really good team, but you've got to have that quarterback to get you over the top. And we never had, we never had Jimmy Mack, you know, after, that 80, after, that, after his 85 run. And so anyway, uh, when, when Jim Harbaugh was, was drafted and, and he was coming in there, Mike Tomczak was still the head coach then. And, and look, Harbaugh has always, from day one till right now, Jim Harbaugh has always been a highly intelligent, highly competitive human being. I knew Jim's uh, dad, Jack, very well. I know his brother, John. I knew the family. I've had John, you know, when he was coaching in college, do several clinics for me when I was there at the Bears. Much respect for the family. And then, and then Jim, Jim was, was, as I said, he was very, very football smart, and he was extremely, extremely competitive and very tough, very, very tough. And so, as I said, when you've got guys like that that have that type of inner drive, all of those guys that I've mentioned had a real inner drive to them. They were all self-starters, self-motivators. You didn't, it didn't take a whole lot to get them kick-started. You knew that if they wanted to go into coaching, that they would be successful at it. You had an opportunity, you know, a few years later. You were, what, in Chicago for 10 years, I believe, correct? 86 to 95? Yeah. And then you have a chance, and you go and you get to be a coordinator for the first time. And I've talked to guys who have been in that position before throughout the league, and, and that's a big, big step. And now I know maybe to the casual fan, you know, that you think the big step is coordinator to head coach, but there's a big step from position coach to coordinator, too. And you got a chance to go and work with one of your, your very close friends in Arizona and Vince Tobin. And, and so what did that mean to you when you got that chance for the first time? Well, it was, it was a big chance. And, look, I, I had had offers before then, but I was always under contract to the Bears, and the Bears didn't want me to leave. Right. You know, they, they never did. They never did want me to leave. And I had had a couple of opportunities before then to leave the Bears, and, and, and I did. I went and interviewed at a couple of places, but, but I, I always came back to the Bears because it was, it was, they were good to me, and it was a good place, and we, were having good, we, were, we had good football teams. And plus, sure. it's, a great, it's a great football city. I mean, it's an iconic football city so anyway but when Vince finally he got that job and I finally went all right I want to make this move and so you go and yes there's a there's a big difference and all of a sudden you know you always you know when you're a young coach you know you always want to work hard and do what you can to be the best that you can at what you're doing but you always think in the back of your mind you know I'd love to be able someday to get a chance if I work hard enough and my resume you know warrants it that I'd like to do this but it 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 really and I'll take you I'll take you and, and our listeners behind the veil a little bit okay. it's always a little bit different when you get the job and wanting to get the job because all of a sudden when you're in the room and the door shuts and all of a sudden you're in charge then there's a big difference there's a big difference from being in charge or from taking uh orders from somebody that is in charge you know what i'm saying absolutely and so that was that that was a, that was a huge difference and, and it just escalates you know as to, as to when you become a head coach too 
which I was fortunate enough to be able to do also in my career. So, yeah, I mean, I was excited about it. And look, the, the, you know, the Cardinals had been down. They had not been very good. Uh, Bill Bidwell had fired Buddy Ryan and his staff, and they'd been struggling quite a bit. And we came in there. And the other thing that was unique about going there was the Cardinals, you know, were still playing in Sun Devil Stadium yep. and had been trying, they had been trying for about 15 years to get a stadium and could not get anything passed. So we not only had to go in there and try to get a football team resurrected, they also wanted us to, to be able to get that football team up to a point as to where they could start getting some favorable you know, press and some favorable reactions from the people and the voters in Maricopa County to pass a referendum for a stadium. And so all of that was on the line when we went there. And yeah, so we and, went and, there and just, and, and just started in on that from that base level of it. We'll get to we'll get to this in a second, but I, you foreshadowed a little bit. One of the the my favorite stories that you ever told me, and again we'll get to it in a minute, is how when you eventually became you know head coach there in Arizona, you were still going door to door trying to get votes for the stadium to pass. Well, that's one hundred percent true. I mean, my book will have nothing but truths in it, and and this podcast with you will have nothing but truths in it, and that is the absolute truth. But what what we were able to do with Vince Tobin's staff, you know, the third year. We, we, we kicked a field goal, the last play of the game against the Chargers there in Sun Devil Stadium to make the playoffs. We were still in the NFC East to make the playoffs at 9-7. and seven. The place went crazy. They tore the goalpost down, carried the goalpost down Mill Avenue there in Tempe, you know, at, at Arizona State. The place was going nuts because, you know, finally we were, the Cardinals were back into the, into the playoffs and then our first opponent in the playoffs was the Dallas Cowboys, yep. you know, who was in our division, you know, who, who, uh, and we were playing them at their place. And so, I mean, to, and then not only to get into the playoffs, but then to go into, into the old Texas stadium and beat the Cowboys at their place for the first playoff win that that franchise had had in 51 years. I mean, it was, we had done what we came there to do. Okay. We had done what we came there to do. And then, the, what happened was, though, is they, they still could not get the referendums to pass. And then, plus, they're still playing in, in, in Sun Devil Stadium, didn't have the money from the suites, didn't have them. I mean, it, you know, it always comes back to money in the National Football League, of course. you know, sooner or later, sooner or later. And so uh, then that went right into the next period as to when I was named the interim head coach, and then I was named the head coach, and then, you know, did a lot of work to help try to generate votes again to get the to get that that new that referendum passed, so they could build a new stadium there, and so that they could get into the twenty twentieth and in the twenty first century with the rest of the league. And that I can still remember standing at the polling places, myself, Larry Wilson, Hall of Famer, Joe Green, Hall of Famer, you know, with people you know asking them for their vote as they were going in a polling place. And so, and then as you said, you know, Rob Moore, Jake Plummer, and I before yep. a game. A Saturday before a game went with a Fox television crew door to door, knocking on doors, having you know housewives come to their to, to the door in their hair curlers and their house coat, their kids in the back eating their cereal with milk, asking, "Ma'am, would you please vote on this Tuesday for this referendum?" And eventually, you know, obviously they got their stadium. When when you went back in games after that, and you'd go back to to Phoenix and you'd see the stadium, did you did you feel like you played a little part in securing that? Well, I know I played a big part in it, and plus, you know, I've been given credit for playing a big part by yep. a lot of people there. I mean, the people in Maricopa County and in Phoenix are still very good to me. I go back there, and they 
they treat me they treat me really really well because they know how much I you know how much I, I put into it and and I really believe that that Sunday before that vote on Tuesday Michael if we had not beaten the Washington Redskins with Aeneas Williams picked up a fumble in the end zone and went 105 yards with it for a touchdown to win that football game if we hadn't won that game I'm not sure that vote would have would have tipped because it won like 50.7% to whatever the other percentage is that makes 100. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. That's remarkable. You mentioned Aeneas Williams. There's three guys that I picked out from your time in Arizona that I really want to ask you about. And so you mentioned one already, but Aeneas Williams, a Hall of Famer now, a guy that, you know, to be honest, I don't think people really talk about enough anymore. A cornerback, later switched to safety, eight-time Pro Bowl, four-time first-team All-Pro, 55 interceptions in 14 years, and this one blew me away, 13 defensive touchdowns in 14 years. What were you able to do with a guy like that? And if you had to maybe not necessarily compare him to anybody today, but guys who have similar traits, if there are any, who was Aeneas Williams and why was he so good for you guys? Well, Nikki, I mean, that's his, that's his, that's what, that's his, that's his nickname. As everybody calls him Nikki is one of my, is one of the best human beings I've ever been around in my life. We are still very close to this day. He does a lot of work with the National Football League now and mentoring young players. He's a, he's a pastor of his own church, you know, there in St. Louis. Uh, he, he is a wonderful, wonderful human being. As a football player, when I, we first went in there, and, and Aeneas was a free agent, and he agreed to re-up, you know, and sign his second contract with the Cardinals, even though they had not had much success. And he had a lot of play from a lot of other people in the league wanting him to come because he came in there and, and, and he was already, you know, starting to emerge as one of the premier corners in the league. And so, but he, he signed and stayed, you know, when we came in there brand new, when we took over to say, you know, I'd like to be here with this new group. And so one of the first things that I ever did, I mean, I sat down with him just like I sat down, you know, with, with Mike Singletary when I went to Chicago and we talked. And then after about two months of working with him, you know, towards the end of training camp, I called him in one day and said, you know, and, and just he and I, and I said, and yes, I'd like to tell you something. I said, and, and I want you to believe this from me because, you know, I, I haven't said this until, you know, I, I really wanted us to get to know one another and having worked and gone through a training camp together. I said, having you play corner for me in this defense is exactly like having Mike Singletary play middle linebacker for me for the Chicago Bears. What was his reaction? And I said, he said, Coach Mike, I can't believe that. I said, well, believe what I'm telling you. Believe what I'm telling you. And, and that's how much you mean to me, and that's how much you're going to mean to this defense. And look, the guy was an incredible, incredible human being. He was an incredible worker. His practice habits were second to none. And, and the way that he concentrated and his focus – and look, we had Dallas. Dallas was in our division, so we were going to play them twice a year. And many game plans, you know, I would, I would say, I would come in and I would, I would call Aeneas on, I would call Aeneas on Tuesday night before anybody else got the game plan, and I'd say, Mickey, this week it's you and Michael Irvin, and I'm going to take the other ten, and we're going to try to stop the rest of them. Are you up for that? He said, I'm your man, coach. So every time I would match him up, I played so much defense around him, just matching him up and letting everybody else work around him. And when you have that commodity, I mean, some of those duels that he and Michael Irving had, when, when Anis was up for the Hall of Fame, Michael Irving was one of his biggest proponents because he went back and referenced those times. And he said that the toughest 
defensive back he ever played against in his career, down in and down out, was Aeneas Williams. And, you and know, so, I mean, and Aeneas wasn't one of those guys that ran four two. So how did he do it? What made him so good? Was it hands? Was it feet? No, look, was it smarts? Well, first, no, first, first of all, he, he was in, in incredible physical condition. And, and he kept himself in incredible physical condition. The other thing was, I mean, Aeneas was fast. Now, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a 4-2 or 4-3, but Aeneas, Aeneas could run whatever he ran all day in pads. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? All day in pads. And he was, a, he was a tremendous technician, a tremendous technician. And then he was a perfectionist. He was a perfectionist in his film study. He was a perfectionist during the game. And he was one of those guys in a ball game that never panicked. And as a corner, he always he always had a great perspective because if he ever got beat, he knew he had gotten beat because the other guy had just outmaneuvered and out and had beaten him physically. But he knew that that position sometimes that happens, so he could erase that and still go back. In other words, if things were not going well for Aeneas, he never panicked and abandoned his fundamentals. Right. And a lot of young a lot of players do that. Sometimes a great player, if things aren't going great, they'll start to abandon fundamentals to start try to get back on that greatness level during that ball game. Aeneas never did that. He was there was no panic in his game. And Aeneas William, uh, Williams, as good a human being as he is, he was as tough and as competitive a guy as I've ever ever been around. I mean, it it, it was it was look. If I could have kept Aeneas Williams with me throughout my career. I mean, I I would still I'd have a lot more wins on my record. I promise <laughs> you, because because that guy is a special human being. Uh, when he went in the Hall of Fame, I was so happy and so proud. You know, because I've I've been around seven of those guys that have gone in the Hall of Fame, and 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 very closely associated with Mike Singletary and with and with Aeneas Williams on a day to day coaching basis. It made me so proud, and it also made me very proud that they were very appreciative of what I had done for it. Uh, for them and and have said it many times to a lot of people. I think with the draft process now, you know, being such a a media event and and guys looking at, you know, advanced numbers for this and, you know, what are his splits when he runs that and and all the the numbers that a prospect turns into. One of the things that I always kind of appreciated more as I covered the league because I didn't appreciate it when I started covering the league was the mental toughness it takes to follow a number one receiver for 65 or 70 snaps a game. And I guess I guess it never really occurred to me. I always thought, well, if you can do it physically, who cares what's going on mentally? But that is a huge part of it. So, you know, can, can you kind of explain a little bit why it's so difficult mentally to track a pro bowler or an all pro like Michael Irvin for 70 snaps, left, right, slot, wherever? Well, let me say this. Tracking them during a game, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. The hard part is being mentally tough enough to prepare to do it. To be mentally tough enough to zero in on what it's going to take, how you're going to go about your weekly preparation, and then do it daily in practice. Practice rep in, practice rep out, practice rep in, practice rep out, never taking anything for granted, and and then being able to, to every week after week after week to be able to come back mentally to get ready for the next challenge because – Playing the game, playing the game, guys like that thrive in that environment, okay? But then when it's just them, and it's just, and it's just them, and it's a film room, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a whiteboard up there with, with, with the game plan on it, and then it's studying the, the techniques of your opponent. So, so you know, 
uh, in such finite detail that you're able to recognize things in a split second that what goes on, that is where the mental toughness comes in. Mental toughness comes in the preparation. Because if you're not mentally tough in the preparation, regardless of how much natural ability you have, you will never, ever reach your fullest potential on the football field. All of those guys that are in the Hall of Fame, regardless of the skill set they had, I promise you, getting ready to play the game, they all had that mental toughness because the game is too hard, the competition is too close, the skill set of your opponent is too great that if you don't have that mental toughness in preparation, you're not ever going to be there consistently. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's what I heard from talking to corners and things. You know, when when my last year in Green Bay, uh, the Packers, actually my second to last year, the Packers hired Mike Pettin as defensive coordinator. And he had come, you know, from a, a couple of different places, but the bulk of his success was in New York with the Jets, with Rex Ryan. And so I really wanted to understand what his defense meant for guys like Darrell Rivas and Antonio Cromartie and some of these guys that could do very special things. And so, you know, I, I just always found that particular angle fascinating when learning about Pettin was how those guys prepared and, and everything. And I came to appreciate it a little bit more. One of the things I didn't get to experience in Green Bay because they had, you know, some really good winning records in my time there was a very, very high draft pick. But when you got to Arizona, you guys had the number three pick going into your first season as D coordinator with Vince Tobin. Now, before we talk about the player that you guys took, what is the pressure like on an organization when you have a pick that high? Is it just, does everybody know that this is, you, you can't screw up kind of a situation? You know, no, absolutely. And especially back then, because now with the salaries, uh, you know, and the draft pick salaries being tiered like they are, I mean, it's still a big number, but back then the numbers were getting astronomical, right. especially for your first five picks. And so you make a mistake in that pick, I mean, you can crush your salary cap for years. And so, absolutely, there, there was pressure on that. And then, you know, most of the time, unless you've done a really nice job of trading up and, you know, have been very astute, most of the time, uh, your, your organization, sometimes it's not the coaching staff, but, you know, because you, you mo- most of the time, if you've got a real high pick, you've got a new coaching staff coming in there because you've been really bad. Very true. Right? You have not been good. So, uh, if you're a coaching staff, that has not earned that pick, but all of a sudden you have it, that you realize that your chance to stay there for a while is going to depend on being able to be right with that pick. And most of the times coming into positions like that, where you're taking over a, a program that's not successful, Michael, and also that has a very high pick, you, you can go a lot of different directions because clearly you don't have a whole lot of good players or you wouldn't have gotten a job in the first place. Yeah, and, and so you guys had the number three overall pick, and number one in that year was Keyshawn Johnson, the wide receiver from USC. Number two, Kevin Hardy, a linebacker from Illinois. And then at number three, your Arizona Cardinals wound up taking Simeon Rice, oddly enough a teammate of Kevin Hardy at Illinois. So I'm curious, what did you think of Simeon Rice when you put on the tape, and then what was he like when you first saw him and you got your hands on him for the very first time yourself? You know, we'd, we'd come in there. Vince Tobin was the head coach then. I was the defensive coordinator. And, and all of our defense, I mean, it was predicated, just like everybody else's is, on, on being able to get pressure on the quarterback. And we had just come from a run, you know, there in Chicago with Richard Dent, okay, with Richard Dent and Otis Wilson and Wilbur Marshall and guys that could bring heat, you know, guys that, that could come after a quarterback. And a lot of times 
a lot of the success in the back end of your defense is dependent on what kind of pressure you get on the front end. And so, and, and, and viewing and going and looking at and going through that draft and vetting that draft, I mean, there are a lot of great players in that draft. I mean, Jonathan Ogden was in that draft too. Yep. I mean, there were some great players in that draft, but we knew defensively we had to have somebody to be able to pressure the quarterbacks in, in the NFC East, and we didn't have that guy on the roster at the time. I mean, the, the, the guy that we had that they had been rushing with was a guy named Michael Bankston out of Sam Houston State. You know, that was a good football player, but he wasn't an elite edge rusher. And so when you, we went through and started vetting all of these players, you know, Simeon Rice was that. I mean, he was long. He was athletic. He was extreme. I mean, he was Gumby. He was extremely flexible. He had that motorcycle lean where he could bend the corner and touch his knee on the ground and and point that foot flat back at that launch point of that quarterback and get there. And we really felt like the defenses that we had that had accentuated Richard Dent's ability, we could do that with Simeon Rice. And so that's why we took him. So Rice is the number three overall pick, like I said, and ends up being the NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year. Double-digit sacks right away. And so, again, for a coaching staff and an organization that is feeling the pressure of getting that pick right, you guys must have been feeling pretty confident by the end of 96. Well, I mean, we felt, well, here's the deal. And again, I, I've, always, I've done, uh, this is my 35th draft that I've done now, and, and I, learned, I learned from some of the best in the scouting business. Bill Tobin, C.O. Bricado, some legends in the NFL scouting business, and 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 they taught me a lot about how to look at look at players and what you do. I mean, you don't want to be. They always told me, you know, you don't want to be an IE, an instant evaluator. Keep your powder dry. Take a look at a guy and and, and trust your eyes. Trust your eyes. Trust what you see. Trust the people that you believe in that are at telling you things. But at the end of the day. Trust your eyes and what you see and, and know what you want those players to be, how they're going to fit into your scheme. And so he did that. He did that exactly right. We had hired Joe Green as our defensive line coach, which we thought was essential because, uh, you know, we, we felt like that he would go, you know, he would help with the guys that we brought in on the defensive line. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it worked out. It worked out and it worked out for Simeon, not only there, but when he finally left as a free agent and went to Tampa, he continued that. Simeon Rice is one of the all-time, you know, if you look at it, he's one of the all-time big sack leaders in the National Football League yep. to this day. 122 career sacks, which is impressive. And like I said, that rookie season ended up with 12 and a half. I'm looking here now. So that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight seasons of double-digit sacks, including two in a row with Tampa with 15-plus in back-to-back seasons. So, I mean, you talk about that ability right there into the early 2000s, and, and that's a that's a premier pass rusher. And so after a couple yeah. of seasons in Arizona, you get promoted – to head coach and this was the the beginning of of our relationship because I called you for a story I was working on on what it's like to be an interim coach and you told me you know all these great details about it and so the question I want to pose to you on here is all of a sudden you know you get a call at what was it 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and you find out the guy who brought you to Arizona is out and you're in what is that whirlwind like well I mean look first of all when, when that, that that's the worst way in the world that you can you can get and if you get an interim job then you know things aren't going well right. correct I mean so so that and 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 plus as close as I was with Vince Tobin I mean I you know I I, I felt awful and, and and I you know I didn't want you know I didn't want to take it I mean because you know that look we all failed you know we all failed as far as as not being able to do enough I mean in the first three years we were great. And, and, and we, 
did some things that you needed to do. And then, then for the organization to make that decision that now Vince Tobin was not going to be their head coach. Well, clearly, I mean, you know, we all worked for and with Vince Tobin. So we were all part of that. It wasn't like, you know, it was a, it was an exclusive club. Everybody, everybody was a part of that. So I, I felt awful. And, you know, and, and, and Vince told me, he said, look, he said, don't, he said, this is your opportunity. Don't, he said, I'll be fine. You go ahead and do what you need to do for you. Don't, he said, don't take a step back, you know, career wise because of this. He said, you know, just, it just didn't work out. I had my time. And so anyway, yeah, it was very hard. It was extremely hard. And I, and, and, and still to this day, you know, it, 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 it wasn't easy, but at the same time, you know, the thing that it, that it happened and that happened after, you know, I had already been up and interviewed and had been named head coach of the bears right. for six hours and didn't know it for three. And I knew this, I knew that I could not walk the second head coaching opportunity in a row for what I did in Chicago. I got a lot of, 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 and, and it's, you know, a lot of respect in the national football league and the league office. I mean, it just, because I mean, it's that, uh, that was my dream job and that was hard to turn down, but I turned it down for the right reasons. And I've been, you know, I've been justified in that many times over since then and with no hard feelings toward the bears at all. But I knew that I couldn't say, well, I don't want this job. I'll wait for another one because in the meantime, you know, I had interviewed for the new Orleans job myself, Gary Kubiak, uh, John Fox and Jim Hazlitt had interviewed for the new Orleans job when it came open. That's when Jim Hazlitt got the job. So, you know, I was on the radar to be a head coach, of the national football league, sure. but it, you, you can't turn down too many of them when they offer them to you. What you is, know, and so, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No. And so, I mean, that's, you know, that's so absolutely. And Vince was right. You know, I had to take it. What is it like to, you know, all of a sudden be at the front of the room for not just the defense, which you'd been comfortable with, because that was the, the focal point of your whole career. But now you're, you're addressing the whole team. Now, obviously, you don't go and start calling plays. You got offensive coaches for that. But does it feel different to suddenly have control of an entire room as opposed to just the guys you've known for years? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think, you know, one, one advantage that an interim uh, head coach does have, and I've, you know, talked with Jeff Fisher about this a lot because he got the, the Oilers job on an interim basis is at least, you know, the team, you know what I'm saying? You know, the team. So it's not like you're just a completely brand new person up there and you don't know the people. And plus, you know, the, the, I was, I was involved in, in, in drafting all of those players there. I was involved in the off season program with them. And, you know, I didn't just limit myself to knowing the defensive players. I got to know all the players on the team, you know, from, from day one because I felt like that was, you know, that was extremely, extremely important as a coordinator, you know, to do that. Because, you know, as a coordinator, look, I'm going to have to get to know these offensive guys because when it comes time, you know, for them to be our show team, I'm going to have to ask them to do some things, you know, for me. So, I, you know, I want to have That's a relationship true. with these guys and at least them know who I am. So from that aspect of it, no, it wasn't. And, and plus, when you when you're, get the job on an interim basis, you don't have a lot of prep time because you've got games to get ready to play. Right. And so the biggest, the biggest thing is getting your staff together, reorganizing your staff, being able to assign responsibilities, and then get that stuff going so that you can make everything else as normal as possible for the players. So to, in that aspect of it, I never felt like that was a problem. I really didn't. The, the issues come in. Then in the off season, when all of a sudden all everything else starts getting heaped on you as a head coach, that you have no idea, you know, you have no idea until 
you sit in that chair all the responsibilities that a head coach has as a head of a corporation, basically, you know, in the National Football League. You just have no idea until you get the job. Did you continue to call plays as the head coach? You know what? I, I, I didn't. I named Larry Marmee as my defensive coordinator, who was on my staff as the, as the, as the secondary coach. Now, I, you know, I would clearly had the headset on and was hooked up to everybody. But, but I look, and, and here's what I needed to learn. And I, and I, I had called a lot of guys that the head coaches in the league and was, and my main questions were about game management, game management, you know, timeouts, how to work, you know, how to work the clock, how to do these things, you know, and I, I, I did some extensive, extensive deep dives into that. And so it, within that, I trusted my coaches. Now I was involved in all the game planning and stuff, but during the, during now, of course, I always had my suggestions during the game, but right. during the game, I was, I was, I, especially my first year, I wanted to be deeply immersed into the game management part of it because there's a lot of games won and lost just on game management in the National Football League because the talent is so close. Well, it's funny you say that. I'm going to read you a quote here. I was talking to Brian Billick, the former Ravens coach, about what it was like to go from being, you know, an offensive coordinator to to a head coach. Because again, I was asking him for for some context and some reference about Matt Lafleur when I was covering the Packers, and he gave me this great quote. Right. I'm going to read it to you. He said, "Quote: I mean, you think about it. When you're an offensive coordinator, and if I go back to my days in that position, my wife and kids will tell you that it's 24/7. I call it the 3 a.m. rule. Whatever wakes you up at 3 a.m., what do you think?" thinking about are you thinking about do i put the fullback in the flat do i run this excuse me do i run this protection well then you're a coordinator am i thinking about roster salary cap practice structure how do i handle these certain decisions during the game well now you're thinking like a coach a head coach so you better have an answer for who's waking up at 3 a.m worrying about those other things because as a head coach you can't do it all when you're a coordinator it's all consuming and then you get a head job and just think well i can do both and that's disrespectful of what a head coach has to do so yeah it takes a village and that's 100 percent true uh, brian's 100 percent right and i would guarantee you any head coach anybody that's a head coach pre uh, right now in the national football league at the present or anybody that has been a previous head coach will tell you exactly the same thing especially in this day and age yeah, I mean, it's, it's the game management stuff that I think any of us would sort of take for granted because all of a sudden you've got to think about your timeouts. You've got to think about, you know, when to run the, the, the no huddle at the end of the half or when to go into your four minute at the end of a game because it's not always the four minute mark. There's a lot to think about. And I can see how when you don't really get, I mean, I guess an exhibition game is a chance to try and figure that out, but you don't really get dry runs at that. No, you don't get any dry runs because a preseason game is a preseason game because at the end of the day, the outcome is, is inconsequential. Right. But once you start the regular season, there's a lot of consequences to it. And so the biggest thing, and all the good head coaches, they know on game day how to get their coordinators to make adjustments and how they themselves make adjustments with complementary football. You've got to be able to make adjustments with complimentary football during that 60 minutes that you, you're going against somebody else that is doing the same thing. That's something that you've got to be dialed in on. And until you've ever been a head coach in the National Football League, you just don't know how it feels. So after, after your, your four years with Arizona as the head man from 2000 to 2003, you went and spent a lot of time with Jeff Fisher, a guy that you mentioned on this podcast and also you've told me in the past has been you know, a great friend and mentor and resource and, and you know, confidant throughout your career. Did you think at that point when you left Arizona, were you, were you thinking you were going to get another head job at some point? 
You know what? I really, I, I really didn't have that in mind. I would have liked to have had, but what I wanted to do, see, I still had time left on my contract there with the Cardinals. I could have set out, you know, for a while, but sure. I, I just, I love coaching. I love football. I love being in it. And I had, I had about four opportunities, you know, and, and, and uh, with the, the Titans being the fifth opportunity and they were all sitting there for me. And so I, I, had thought maybe I wanted to sit out. But when I started looking and thinking after about two weeks, I went, you know, there's no way I can sit out a season. I mean, I, you know, I just, I want to get back into it. And Jeff Fisher, you know, called me and he held a job for me because he had Gunther Cunningham. That was his assistant head coach and linebacker coach that had, had left uh, that was getting ready to leave to go back to Kansas city. And he called and talked to me and said, Mac, here's what gun did for me. Here's what I'd like for you to do for me. I'm not going to make you the coordinator. I've got a good young coordinator, and he was right. It was Jim Schwartz. I've got a good, great young coordinator here. I've got a good defensive staff. I think you could be a big help, you know, with, with the with the defense. I think you could be a big help to me. And he said, so you know, I'll I'll hold this for a while for you until you make a decision because I'm getting ready to go do some stuff at the Super at the Super Bowl. It was in Houston that year for ESPN. He said, so I've got time. And he said, so just. This, uh, tell me that you'll let me know if you take another job or if you just don't think you want this one. But as long as you don't tell me anything, then I'll hold it for you. Okay. And so, you know, ev- eventually after the Super Bowl, you know, I'd, I'd talked with a lot of people and I, you know, I'd, and I'd, I'd visited and I thought, you know what? I want to be with Fish. This is what I want to do. I like what they're doing in Tennessee. I, I like, I like uh, his style of ball. I like what they do and I trust him. And so I just called him and said, hey, uh, you know, I'm interested in that. I said, I'll take that job. I never visited Nashville, never been, you know, done anything. He said, fine, here's get a plane ticket. And, you know, here we are 20 years later. So what was it about him that made you so confident in basically taking well, look, a job look, kind look, of sight was, unseen? Let's see. Yeah. You know, first of all, I mean, you know, I had known Jeff, you know, since the bear days because Jeff was on that Super Bowl team. He had yep. broken his ankle. Then he had, he had been, a, he had been a, a, an, an ex facto defensive coach for Buddy Ryan. All right. And then Buddy, then he got, then Jeff went to uh, the Eagles, as, you know, as a very young coach too, uh, you know, for his first shot in there. So we were defensive coaches in the league together for quite a while, you know, crossing paths. Plus all those guys that were left after that 85 team that I was with from 86, 87, 88, 89, they were all still his friends. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so we had a, we had a lot of, of paths cross in that way. And I just, you know, got to know him and I trusted him. And I liked what he had done. I, I liked, you know, and I, you know, I, I'd followed his uh, progression, you know, throughout the league and what he had done. He had always been very, very honest with me. I'd never heard anything but really good things about him. The times I was with him, I liked him. So I just trusted him. You know, I trusted him with what was going on. And look, it's a real small circle, the coaching uh, circle in the National Football League. You know who the people are you can trust and who those are that you would just rather not deal with. Jeff Fisher was one of those guys I trusted immensely. And you stayed with him for quite a long time. Again, in an era now where coaches seem to come and go like crazy, you guys were together from 04 all the way to 16 because he went and took over the Rams and, and you went with him. And a lot of that time when you were with each other, or maybe even the whole time, was was with an, an associate or assistant head coach title. So what kinds of things were you doing to help the head coach, and why is that position valuable to guys? Well, that's extremely valuable because really, look, as a head coach, you need somebody that has no other agenda other than helping you to bounce uh, thoughts and ideas and decisions off of. Because most everybody else in that building has another agenda. 
you know, no matter who you talk to, you know, you, you can, you can talk to your GM, you can talk to your coordinators, you know, you can talk to your trainers, you can talk, but everybody's got an area and an agenda, you know, a somewhat you like you, you need somebody that you trust as a confidant that, you know, has nothing else on their agenda other than to tell you their honest opinion and to tell you the truth. And so that's, that's, that's invaluable because look, being a head coach in the national football league, it's a great thing. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I did. But sometimes, you know, when you're sitting at the top, you really wonder how many people there are that you can really trust. And that's, and that's extremely important. I think that goes for anything. The higher up the ladder you move as a CEO in any corporation. And I mean, you know, your circle, your circle of, of people that you really draw into you get smaller and smaller. And so you can help in a lot of areas. And a lot of times, you know, what you can do as an assistant head coach, <clears throat> because if you've got the respect of the players and the, and the assistant head coaches, they'll come to you with some issues. And, and sometimes you can keep things from getting to the head coach, you know, that he really doesn't have to mess with. You can help, you can help in that area too. And so, I mean, we had a, we had, we had a really successful run with those types of things together as far as, as distributing and, and working and, and attitude and a culture in all the buildings we were in together. Now I have a couple more players I want to ask you about. And again, your coaching career went all the way in the NFL from 86 to 2016, which is an unbelievable span. And you were part of the Rams group and Rams organization when they bring in a guy named Aaron Donald. And as a defensive coach who had seen, you know, the refrigerator Perrys of the world, had seen guys like that, what did you think of Aaron Donald before you drafted him? And, and, and how good is that guy? Look, Aaron Donald was the most unusual prospect I've ever vetted. Mike Waffle was our defensive line coach and he fell in love with him immediately. And so he kept coach Mike, come here and watch tape. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And so, you know, when you when you look at the dimensions, you put it on, you went, well, because you know, I've been around some some great defensive linemen, you know, in, in my time. You know, we had Eric Swan there at at and at uh yep. you know in, in Arizona. I mean we had some guys and then, of course all those guys at the Bears. I mean, we had some real guys and I'm looking, and he really didn't fit any of those dimensions. But you start watching him, and it was just so unusual, the tenacity and the strength and the unbelievable explosion that he had both lower body and in his upper body and his hands. His hands were some of the best you ever saw, you know, just coming out of college, and his, the strength of him, and then the tenacity of it. And so, I mean, you kept watching and watching and going, you know what? It doesn't really matter that he doesn't meet all these dimensions. Everything I'm looking at in tape, and I went back to my early years, you know, what the, these guys that have taught me how to scout in this league told me, believe your eyes, believe your eyes, believe your eyes. Mike Waffle absolutely loved him, the defensive line coach. Jeff Fisher, you know, when he started watching him, absolutely loved him. And we all did for the same reason. What you saw on tape was a football player that was relentless, that was really unblockable. He was unblockable, and not only unblockable, he was producing after he got rid of the blockers. And so, you know, and I remember when we brought him in for his 30 visit, we were having a draft meeting still, you know, having a, a, a 30, uh, uh, and he was in for his 30 visit, so Mike Waffle was showing him around facility, the facility, and Mike Waffle brought him into the draft room. Oh, my gosh. You know, when we were going over, and, and, you know, nobody ever does that. He just pushed the door open and said, hey, I just want to introduce everybody to Aaron Donald, and I want you to know he's better than anybody on that draft board and just shut the door and left. Wow. And so, I mean, and so Jeff Fisher was going, 
Yes, and Jeff Fisher's got a great eye for talent, and and he agreed with Mike Waffle, and and we all agreed, and so you know the rest is history. The guy, the guy's a phenomenal player. He's made a mark that will last forever in this league. I mean, he's a future Hall of Fame player, but his work ethic and the way he goes about his preparation, just like the rest of those Hall of Famers I've been associated with, I promise you. So one of the things that coaches always tell me and one of the slogans they use, I'm sure you've heard it a million times, is that the NFL is a copycat league. And a lot of times that refers to schematics and things like that. If one team is having success out of a certain formation, other teams try and adapt it, things like that. But from a drafting and scouting perspective, is it also a copycat league? And what I mean by that is the Rams find Aaron Donald, the guy who doesn't fit the body beautiful dimensions that you talked about, but all of a sudden he's tearing the league apart. Does Aaron Donald's success create a little bit more of an opening, wedge the door open just a little bit more for those other undersized defensive tackles for the next five, six years? There's no doubt. There's no doubt he does. And, and of course, let me just say this. When, look, I drafted Kyle Vandenbosch when I was here, okay? I mean, Kyle Vandenbosch out of Nebraska, where everybody was kind of, well, maybe he's this, maybe he's that. But when Joe Green and I started watching him on tape, I mean, there was nobody. There was nobody that played harder for longer than Kyle Vandenbosch. And so, you know, and it was one of those that during the draft where I said, look, if it makes a difference who the head coach wants on this team, I want Vandenbosch. And so, I mean, sometimes you have to make that gut call. And then, you know, that gives you that, that their success does open the door, at least for people to start giving a second and maybe a third look at guys that don't just have all the height, weight, speed measurables that right. you take. Because at the end of the day, Michael, for you and for our listeners, I think it's just very important. You're still playing the game of football. And to do that, you need good football players. And if you know how to look for a good football player and look past the numbers, then you're going to do yourself a big favor when you're drafting and selecting players. Now, the last guy I want to ask you about, I asked you earlier regarding the pressure surrounding a team with a, you know the number three pick when you guys were in Arizona. How about in 2016 when you guys had the number one overall pick, everybody knew you were going to take a quarterback, and there were two guys, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, that the organization had to decide between. What was that pressure like? And I know you're a defensive guy, but just being around the building at that time, what is it like when there's two quarterbacks, everybody knows they're going to go one and two, but nobody in the country other than the teams themselves know what order they're going to go in? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, again, you've got, to, you've got to involve a lot of people, but then the decision makers have to come together in a real small group and decide and say, this is why we are taking this, and then tell, and tell your owner, this is why we've chosen this guy over this guy to basically be the face of the franchise for years to come because that's a, that's a big, big investment that you're making. And then the Rams doubled down and made a bigger investment in Jared Goff, but we vetted both of them at the time. You know, at the time we were in Oxnard because we had had to move right. the organization, entire organization and the football operation three times in seven months from St. Louis to L.A., which is a whole nother book in itself. <laughs> but anyway, in, do, in doing that, we were set up in the Marriott there in, in Oxnard, and we brought both of those guys in and vetted them very, 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 uh, uh, you know, deeply. I mean, we did so much as to clear out the ballroom and, 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 and give them, you know, give them some of the playbook go over some things in the offensive meeting room with them, take a th two- or three-hour break doing other things, and then bring them into the meeting room, move all the chairs uh, into the ballroom, move all the chairs out of the way, set, defensive, or set coaches up as defenses out there, give them a play call, 
and then let them start pointing out their reads and what they were going to do. Wow. It was a very deep. It was a very deep vetting of both of those guys, and we felt like both of them were going to be successful in the league. But at, at the end of the day, you know, Jared Goff was probably the more the more pure thrower. We had an idea of what we wanted to do, you know, offensively, and so plus he was, you know, he's from Cal, uh, and you know, both of them had great visits there. We knew wherever either one of them went, they were going to be successful. And so then Jared Goff was the pick. I'm not referring to this pick in particular because I don't know which way you leaned, and that's not why I'm asking. But just in general, over the course of your career, if you're, a, let's say, you're a, you know, a coach, and and all of a sudden the personnel guys really love player A, and you think, oh my gosh, how can they love player A when I love player B? What's it like to be on the wrong end of that, where they don't take the guy that you want? Well, I mean, you've got to you've got to come to a consensus, and and look. Here's the one thing that I learned, you know, all of my 35 years in this league, and I still stay that to this day. I do a lot of draft work right now. I, I do a lot of yep. draft work. I go to the combine. I mean, I've got a lot of coaches in the league still calling me about, you know, my thoughts on players coming out in the draft. The one thing I always, always say, you're not, you're never always right. You're never always right. You can have an opinion and your opinion can be yours, but if you think that you're always right and you're not open at least to listen to something else, well, then you're going to miss something. So, you know, if, if, if the consensus is the other way other than you, well, then you say, you know what? I wasn't seeing it quite this way, but we're not that far apart, so let's go. Let's go with the group. You know, you just, you've got to trust. You've got to trust your gut. You've got to trust your feel, but you've also got to trust the people around you too. Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that makes a lot of sense. I could see a situation where, you know, certainly like any business, any, any, you know, walk of life, there's going to be pride, there's going to be egos involved. And there has to be times when guys can put those aside. And and that can be a a, a learning process, too. It can take guys a while, I'm sure. And they can be, you know, really, I'm sure there's situations where guys get one right. And, you know, they, they tend to rub it in somebody else's face about a player that was right or wrong and things like that. So it's, there are some overlaps in terms of just the interpersonal skills. It's just everything seems like it's always amplified a little bit in the NFL because every decision, you know, comes with millions of dollars attached to it. You know what I mean? Well, if you look, if you it's just like playing cornerback in the National Football League. And that's what I always tell people when they start saying, well, how can he give up this or how could he give up that? If you've never been beaten for a touchdown pass in the National Football League, then you've never played cornerback. All right. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, if you've never made a wrong pick, in the NFL draft, then you've never drafted. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yep, absolutely. And that, and that kind of brings me to the uh, the last little run of your career here. You'd been in the league for so long, the 80s all the way to 2016. Now you're on my side of it. You're an analyst for the Titans radio games. You're doing radio stuff. You're doing podcasts. You're doing everything. First, what was it like to walk away, and was that tough to walk away? And second, what's it like to be on the other side of the aisle, so to speak? Well, I mean, it, it was – it. it it was tough because of the way it ended in LA. Right. Uh, it wasn't, it, uh, I've had opportunities to go back in, you know, even when I left LA four years ago, but it just wasn't right. There, there are certain times in your career where, you know, 30 years ago, I would have jumped at any opportunity just to go to another team. You know, now I don't have to, you know, I want the situation and the people to be right as to where I'm going. And so when this opportunity came, I jumped at the opportunity to come back here because of the great history I'd had here for the eight years I was here with this organization and this city. I mean, this place was really good to me when I was here those eight years with Jeff Fisher. And you know, it was very good to him, too. We had a great run here. 
And so the, I was looking forward to coming back here to work with Mike Keith, who's the voice of the Titans, who's in the Tennessee, you know, Radio Hall of Fame. I mean, I was coming back to a really good deal. Amy Adams Strunk had just taken over, you know, the 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 the, the ownership as a, as the chief, you know, owner of of this of this club along with. Kenneth Adams and Barkley Adams, and so I knew the, I knew these people. I didn't know Amy real well. I'd worked for her dad, but I knew the organization. I knew the city. A lot of the main people in the organization were still in place in the in the upper in the upper reaches of the of the organization, and I just felt like it was a good fit. And so when I came back and started doing it, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I loved it from the first time I came in and stepped on the practice field, and then three days later. Uh, got on a plane to go call a preseason game with the Jets. And I didn't know much about the radio business, but I did know football. And really, sure. I mean, they could teach me all, all the ins and outs of, of the, the, the radio business. But they, you know, the football, my football acumen and, and just my personality, that's what they wanted. And so that's what I gave them. And it's been wonderful. And it's, it's morphed into a whole lot of things other than just calling games. I do a lot of things now with the, with the season ticket holders, with the suite holders. You know, I do a lot of things, you know, uh, throughout the off season, you know, with those groups, I'm deeply involved in the draft. I mean, and I, I love it. I really love this aspect of it because here's what I really like, you know, about this. First of all, I know everybody in the league. And so, you know, everywhere we go, I'd, I'd never meet a stranger in all the press boxes we go to or down on the field before the game, you know, talking with the coaches. I've vetted all of these players coming out of the draft. I've got players that are still playing that, you know, I was associated with. I mean, it's great. I, I absolutely love doing it. I really do. And getting prepared for a game, I watch tape and, and dig and grind on tape just like I would when I was getting ready to coach. And so, uh, to me, it, it, it's a perfect thing in the perfect city for me right now. I've had chances to do it nationally, and I've chose to stay here to do it because, I mean, I think it's a great fit for me, and I haven't regretted it one bit. I mean, I love it. And I'll, I'll end with this. You know, I know the way football guys are and, and any, you know, coaches in general across all sports, they love it more than anything. So I know you're, you're enjoying everything you, you're doing right now. And that's, that's great. And I'm sure you're going to continue to do it at a high level like you are. But you're 68 years old. There's coaches and assistants that are your age or older still in the league. If somebody called and somebody said, Coach Mack, I want you to come in and it was somebody you liked and the situation was right, would you give it one last run? If it was somebody that I really believed in and really and really trusted in and they were doing the right things, then we might have something to talk about. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. But until then, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to settle for your, your football knowledge and draft knowledge over the airwaves and on video and podcasts and all that good stuff. But, Dave, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me. This was really, really fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I love hearing about these old scouting stories and player stories and you know understanding a little bit more about guys like Aeneas Williams or Simeon Rice or you know some of these names where you see they're great but you don't necessarily know why they're great. And you get somebody who knows the game like you do and it just it relates to the fan in a way that they they can't get in just a three-hour broadcast so i can't thank you enough dave michael i love doing this i, I really appreciate the opportunity and you're right the fans are the fans are are, are are the backbone of this of the league they really are they're what make it they've been great to me they've given me a great life for 30 plus years i love doing this i really appreciate doing it with you thank you so much so there you have it, a conversation with Dave McGinnis, a great storyteller and a really insightful guy 
who has been around the NFL for so many decades and through so many styles and regime changes that he's got a really unique perspective, as I mentioned, goes all the way back to the mid-80s and Mike Singletary and all the way up to Aaron Donald and the modern Los Angeles Rams. So hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you so very much for listening. And again, this podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening on an Apple platform, be sure to leave us a comment, leave us a star rating, let us know what you like or dislike. All of it helps with exposure for the show, and the more exposure we have, the easier it is for me to find unique guests to bring your way. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. <music>